Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard the idiom that great things come in small packages? It is true that small things can produce great power, for sure. Just think about atomic energy. You can't even see the atom. It is so infinitesimally small, and yet it releases so much power. And in the case of of, uh, atomic energy, it can be used to level an entire city, or it can be used to power an entire city. Consider um, a pregnant woman. She thinks she may be pregnant. She takes a home test. It could be as early as 10 days that she'll get a positive result. She has at that moment something inside of her that is the size size of a poppy seed. At 10 days, that's the size, a poppy seed. And it's obviously tiny and minuscule, and yet... Consider the power that baby has over the mother. I mean, her whole life begins to be ordered around this, that she's having a baby. There's a depth of emotions and feelings that she didn't really know that she had. Like a level, a depth of love that she hasn't known. More than likely, she hasn't known before this. And this is just this little poppy seed-sized embryo inside of her. That's powerful. That tiny package is exceedingly powerful. In our gospel lesson today, we hear about faith. That's the size of a mustard seed. A mustard seed, by the way, is a very small seed. You probably already knew that. You probably could tell from the context anyway. But a mustard seed is tiny. And yet Jesus uses it to say, even if your faith was as tiny as that little mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry bush that has been tended and cultivated and is producing fruit and is lush, you could just speak to it. Go be planted in the sea, which is not a hospitable environment. We live on the coast, so we know, right, what the sea does. We've seen that uh, recently in Florida, what the sea does does it it destroys and and jesus says you could say to it go be planted in the sea and it would thrive and produce fruit faith the size of a mustard seed okay jesus is this a command to increase my faith and how do i do that can i will myself to be more faithful No. Jesus was telling the disciples to beware of leading the little ones astray. Little ones, you know, in Matthew, there's a similar uh, lesson from Matthew in which little ones quite literally refers to little children. In this sense, he's not using little ones like little children. He's saying more like catechumens, people who are learning the faith, people who are new to the Christian faith. And he's saying... uh, He's warning them, do not lead them astray. Christians who are young in their faith. And he also says that they must forgive one another. Many times you must forgive. Over and over you must forgive. Forgiveness becomes a continuous ongoing thing in the life that Jesus is calling them to live. 
Now, it's to this command that Jesus gives them that the apostles, and notice that it's the apostles that ask the question. He speaks this to all of the disciples, but the apostles particularly are asking Jesus, hey, increase our faith. I mean, it's like they're saying, hey, if you, if you expect us to carry on forgiving, please give us more faith that we may do it. But faith is a powerful thing, even in the smallest and most minuscule quantity. A mustard-sized faith would be sufficient, would be adequate. So did the apostles lack faith? I mean, some would say that they did. Certainly Judas lacked faith. But I would think more of the father who had the child who was demon-possessed, and he said... You might remember, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but help me where I'm weak. And I think that's a better fitting for for this context, how the apostles are saying, increase our faith that we can do this thing that you have asked us to do. Which, let's face it, forgiving is not an easy thing to do. I mean, the the father who said, I believe, help my unbelief. He had faith. In fact, uh, I would put this on the same lines as the the sort of uh, ask Jesus into your heart mantra. Hey, no problem. But if you're asking Jesus into your heart, guess what? He's already there. Because the natural man is enemies with God. The natural man doesn't ask Jesus into his heart. The natural man says, Jesus, stay as far away from me as possible because you're my judge. God is my judge. I don't want to face judgment. So just keep your distance. That is the natural man. So if you find yourself saying, as the apostles did, increase our faith. Well, that right there is the evidence that they have faith. They have faith or else they wouldn't be asking to increase it. Jesus is saying to them, though, that it's not that they need him to grant them an increase in faith. But when they exercise the faith that they already have, their faith will increase and they will see the power that comes through it. I want to quote from Dr. Arthur Just in his commentary. He puts it this way. The hiddenness of the kingdom in their preaching, healing, and forgiving... Keep in mind, we're talking about the apostles here. The hiddenness of the kingdom in their preaching, healing, and forgiving may make them feel as if they do not have enough faith. But like a mustard seed, the smallness of their faith in Christ conceals Christ's great power. And through them, Christ will produce great wonders for the kingdom. It's not the size of their faith. It's the object of their faith which is Christ. Lenski says it this way, faith is a vessel. Its power lies not in being a vessel, but in what it contains as a vessel. Your faith may be small, but the object of your faith, which is Jesus Christ, is all-powerful. So even the smallest faith is adequate. In the last few lessons, uh, verses of our lesson, Jesus talks of a master and a slave. And he asks these questions rhetorically. By the way, when he asks these questions, 
The answer is supplied in the text. We don't have an equivalent in English, but in Greek, you can ask a question that demands a negative answer. Okay, so the answer is given. It's no. Would a master do this? No. I, I, in fact, I could furnish it as I read that. Um, but in English, you kind of get the sense still. I mean, it's asked rhetorically. Would a master do this thing? Of course, the obvious answer is no. Master's not going to come in and say, oh, you've been working out in the field, my slave. Why don't you sit down and I'll serve you? No, the master comes in and says, uh, tell you what, go change yourself so you're suitably attired. Then you can serve me. And then after I've eaten, then you can eat. That's the relationship that's, that he's referencing here. <clears throat> and he concludes that the apostles, uh, that's the slaves. The slaves in this is the apostles. Don't go thinking that the, the master is our Lord, Jesus Christ, because we know he's not that kind of a master. He's one who continually serves us. But in a sense, he is, but not exactly. Don't take this, this, this sort of uh, story and, and, you know, and, and expand it beyond its limits. The point is that the apostles are like slaves. After doing the works that are commanded of them, they nevertheless must confess Although we did all that you have asked us to do as your dutiful servants, we are unworthy servants who have only done what was our duty. In other words, Jesus is saying that by faith, they will do the things that he commands them. But they must do so humbly, knowing that it is Jesus Christ who is at work through them. So we come back to the question of sin within the church the community of believers, this question of forgiveness. If your brother sins, he's talking about believers. He's saying to the disciples, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Oof. I mean, this is going to get old after a while, right? When's the last time you rebuked your Christian brother? We'll start there. You can't remember, probably. <laughs> why is that? Why, why is it that we don't rebuke? Are you afraid that you're going to be viewed as being judgmental? You, you can chew on this one for a while and think about it, but just note that Christ is the judge. And Christ is the one who says, rebuke him. And I will say, I personally have been very grateful for the times when someone has pulled me aside and said, I rebuke you. <laughs> Maybe not exactly like that. But no, seriously, pulled me aside and said, what, did they say? what do I say? Brother, you're going in the wrong direction. Turn around. Yeah, there's a loving way to do it, but we are called to do that. He says it, though, this business of rebuking is said with the expectation that this rebuke will bring about repentance and restoration. So that is always the goal. It's not, I rebuke you, leave this facility and never return. That's the exact opposite of what we want to do. But it is a matter of saying, look, brother, you've gone in the wrong direction. It's time to turn around. Let's walk together in this. 
let's do what is right. Let's do what is commanded of us. We're not earning our salvation, but this is the right thing. And you know it. Your conscience is wearing you down. You know, this is the thing that we do together. And then we forgive. You forgive the one who sins. It doesn't say sins against you at first. It says if your brother sins, period, it's an open sin, period. It doesn't have to be personal. It's just an open sin. Rebuke him. Then it says if he sins against you. Now it's getting personal. It's even, it's like, well, it's easy to to forgive the sin that wasn't against me. But now it's against me. It's going even further. And seven times. And by the way, seven is a biblical number that means wholeness or perfection, completeness. It's it's like saying, however many times your brother sins against you, every time he sins and repents, you are called to forgive him. That's what that's saying. Forgiveness is to be declared as often as it is required. It's not limited to seven times. You're not supposed to sit here with a counter. You have a little counter? I have a, a little counter I use, use at work sometimes. You sit there counting, click, click. Oop, hold on, brother. That's seven times today. You're on thin ice. Don't go any further. No, that's not the idea. All right, so do you have the faith that is required to forgive? Do you have that? You can give an intellectual answer of yes, and then think about it and search yourself out. Do you really have that faith? Do you really have the faith to forgive? Think about Paul's words to the Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, see, I think this helps us to see and to understand a little better. It gives us a hint. We forgive as God has forgiven us. The same faith that you cling to that Jesus Christ died for your sins is the same faith that you cling to that Jesus Christ died for his sins too and for her sins and for the sins of the whole world. It's not just me that's been impacted by this person's sin. It's Christ. He died for that sin. And it's the same faith that's at at work in both of these. Does that help us to sort of wrap our heads around how we forgive those within our midst? How we forgive? I mean, sometimes it's, it's easy to forgive or forget that person who was emotionally unattached from you. They cut you off in the road or whatever. I mean, you forgot about it. You know, a little time goes by and you forget about it. It's the one who's closest to you. That, that's the one that's hardest to forgive. The ones that are closest to you. But we have to remember that we're equals before God. We're equals in this regard. We have both sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to forgive them. And then we're going to stand back and say, you do what you want, Jesus, but I'm not forgiving them. Wow. I mean, how haughty would that be, you know, to do that, to say, well, I know Jesus forgives you, but that, that's Jesus. That's not me. Now I hear someone saying, I can't forgive 
I'm too angry. I was hurt too badly. They didn't repent. Well, firstly, let me just say that repentance is required. It's, God doesn't forgive the unrepentant. Now, God does grant repentance. He gives us repentance. It's not a work of our own. But repentance is something given by God, but it is required. There's a whole other subject of how to deal with people who have wronged you and you, you, you struggle with how to forgive them. They haven't repented. Okay, we'll come to that. I mean, I think that will be addressed here. But I'm not really mostly talking to that because repentance is important. I mean, that's, that's God working in and, and bearing fruit. That's what fruit is. The fruit is the repentance. And it's through that repentance that comes the forgiveness of sins. But that said, you can't see another person's heart as God sees it. God sees their heart, you don't. So when someone makes an earnest confession and repentance, it's not your place to judge whether they mean it or not. God will be the judge of that. And don't worry, God will judge that. But we are to forgive. Suppose you have earnestly, someone has earnestly repented and you still can't find it in yourself to forgive them. I mean, this might not even be something you have to think too hard about. You might know right now exactly who that person is that you just cannot bring yourself to forgive. Instead of finding the power to forgive them within yourself, Find it in Christ. Christ has forgiven them. Confess that. Confess that in Christ, God has forgiven them. In that confession, then you can repent of your inability to do it. We know we can't keep the law perfectly. That's what we're confessing when we confess our sins. Well, My inability to forgive my brother, even though he has repented, is part of my sinful nature clinging to me. And what do I do with that? I do the same thing with that that I do with all of my other sin. I bring it to God and I I confess it and put it on Christ. And Christ says, I take that sin. Your inability to forgive, I take that sin upon myself. You're all sinners. You all live in a sinful, fallen world. You're bound to to sin against one another. Within this church, you are bound to sin against one another. I'd say that the problem is so bad, in fact, that we would fall apart if it were not for Christ. If it weren't for Christ holding us together, we would fall apart. And therein lies the key. The faith that each of you shares is the faith that unites you to Christ and unites you to one another. In faith, cling to Christ. In faith, receive this sacrament together. In in faith, forgive one another. God grant that to us, I pray. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.